I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From the small towns. To the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is. The Our American Stories Podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We're so thankful for all of you that have been listening to our podcast over the last few years. Even in the last few months, we've seen more and more of you tuning in, and we know that's all thanks to you spreading the word about us. We have some exciting news for you. Because of this show's explosive growth, Our American Stories is now partnering with Premier Radio Networks the largest broadcasting syndicator in the country, to reach more and more listeners. Because of this, our podcast is going to sound a little different in a few weeks. We'll be bringing you our full radio show brought to you straight from our new partner, Premier Networks. While the format will be different, it will still be the same old stories you've come to know and expect from us. We hope you'll stay with us through this change as it's been your downloads, your shares, and your donations which let us know how much you love this show. And now for today's stories, we bring you the story of America's comeback after Pearl Harbor at the Battle of Midway. Also, the story of a graphic design professor that knits scarves while running marathons. But first, the story of Joshua Texador. In a previous story, we'd done with Joshua, which you can hear on our website, He'd owned up to an alcohol dependency, moved to Nashville, got married, and began working hard to get his life on the right path, which meant he needed a J-O-B. And that's where this story picks up. I got to Nashville on a Sunday, and I had a job interview that Wednesday. It was working that following Monday. 
And then I've basically, you know, busted my ass ever since that day. And that was what we're talking uh, almost three years ago. So I interviewed for FedEx, uh, United Postal Service, an armor factory, and oh, UPS. I, I definitely went after the postal service because the, they're always hiring. So I knew I could get a job as soon as I got there from going to the post office. And I, um, I, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. I hated it to the point where I said, I, I'm going to make enough money. I will never, ever have to do this ever again. Being a package handler at a post office distribution center sucks. It is the worst job ever. And then, you know, yes, I was making $16 an hour. When I tell you you're gonna, you're gonna work for every single penny, you're gonna earn every single penny from working um, as a package handler. And I was on one of the harder lines because they just see me, like I'm not a small guy. So I was on one of the, the toughest lines at the, at the job site. So I was in charge of three and a half trucks. You got people who are responsible for like two trucks. I have three and a half trucks. And when our belt got crazy, cause there's like a, our belt, there was a top and a bottom. So you have like um, local packages and you have like, like a wet real, I don't know, non-local packages, whatever. So when our local packages would fill up, I would have to stop loading my truck, go down on the bottom belt and help them load that part just for me to go back to the top of the belt and start loading my trucks again. Because the volume was getting so crazy, we had, instead of going in at three in the morning, we were going in at two o'clock in the morning. So from two o'clock in the morning till like eight o'clock, I'm picking up boxes. No bathroom break, picking up boxes. And I'm just like, I will never, ever, 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 ever do this again. And it wasn't so much that you couldn't go to the bathroom, I just knew if I went to the bathroom and came back, I was gonna have to play catch up. So I would purposely just not go. go. But you know, go, I was like, I I can't do this anymore. And then I tried to get a manager job at Dunkin' Donuts, terrible. I was there for two days. I said, I'm good, I'm good. I'm not doing this anymore. So the fun, it's funny. I was in the post office and and I was doing Dunkin' Donuts at the same time for those two days. So when I left on the second day, the very next day, I went to um, FedEx. There's a security company there. It's called Allied Universal. So I started talking to them. I said, hey man, like, it's, how's that job? And they're like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's not bad. And I'm looking at them and they're getting paid and they're not really doing much of anything. So I said, man, I should just go out and <laughs> I should go out and, and do that. And that day I applied for Allied Universal. The hiring process was great. I, well, for me, it was great. I think it's hysterical. Um, <laughs> the day, <laughs> the day of my interview. So in the paperwork, you know, uh, in the paperwork, in the application, it says, you know, you need to be clean shaven and, you know, you need to look presentable. So I went out, got a haircut. I had a full beard, cut the whole beard off. I was clean shaven. And, you know, in my mind, it's an interview. So I have, uh, you know, I got a button up shirt, a tie, I got khakis and shoes on. I go to the building, I get to the building and I'm like, and I'm walking past the room that I'm supposed to go to, but in the room there's like a bunch of people. So I'm like, Am I? I was like, man, I'm in the wrong place. So a lady who's sitting at a desk, she's like, hey, what are you looking for? I'm like, I'm here to apply for, Al- I'm here for the Allied interview. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you're in the right place. Man, when I tell you I'm the only person dressed up I'm the only person dressed up in the entire room. I'm laughing to myself like, yo, (laughs) they cannot be serious right now. Like who shows up like this for a job interview? I'm the only person dressed up. They had one girl in there with slippers, slippers. She had slippers on and uh, SpongeBob pajama pants for a job interview. I'm like, this girl's crazy. You know, and I, you know, I get hired like that day and I guess from the way I presented myself and how I did my interview, um, I got a really good job site and I ended up getting, my job site was the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was, I don't want to say it was a, it was a learning curve. It was, it was like when I first got there, 
So remember, this is all new to me. This is, I think this is like the second or third month that I'm in Nashville. So I don't even know anybody. And, um, <laughs> I was going to quit. I was going to quit working, um, security. And it wasn't so much that I didn't like the Country Music Hall of Fame. Um, the leadership at the Country Music Hall of Fame for security, I was like, man, this, this is not good. Like, it just seemed like people were just doing whatever they wanted. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it here. But I remember, I'm determined. And pretty much, like, uh, they hired me as part-time there. But I ate up so many hours from people not showing up. And plus, they have events. So I was, I was getting, like, 40 hours just off events and covering other people's shifts. And um, they end up, after three weeks of me really, you know, working hard... I got offered a supervisor position there, and I and I took it, and I became the first shift supervisor, and you know I definitely made some changes that weren't working because I like I like to do what works. I mean, people could say, "Hey, you know, we've done this forever." I'm like, "Yeah, but you know, what worked ten years ago is not going to work today." I mean, sometimes what happened last year is not going to work today. So you know, I, you have to adapt to what's going on. So I made some changes uh, myself and the actual uh, site ma- uh, supervisor. You know, we made some real strong changes, and you know, we were working on just building a better culture and a better relationship from a security standpoint with the client. And the client would be the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I 100% believe that we did that. And I end up, you know, becoming the actual site supervisor of the entire thing, and you know. Uh, running a staff of over uh, over 30 people, handling timesheets, uh, payroll, you know, handling all the scheduling. I think from my leadership there and from, you know, my hard work there, I've definitely built better relationships with the people at Allies Universal Security as well as the Country Music Hall of Fame. And like I said, reputation is everything, respect is everything, and I think I've earned my respect with people, and I think my reputation is very is is long standing with the people um, that I've had to work with through my experience there. I mean, more than anything, your work ethic has to it has to shine through. I I mean, I myself, I was a site supervisor, and I mean, I was doing 60, 70 hours a week, like steady, and I'm and I'm doing that, but I'm also making sure that. The, my, I'm making sure that my other supervisors are taken care of. I'm making sure like the new people are getting their hours. Like I didn't just take hours because I could just take all the hours. I will literally let everybody eat and then I will pick up the crumbs. But everybody was getting a piece. So everybody's happy. Everybody's making money. Everybody's comfortable. We changed the training at the Hall of Fame where it was more hands-on rather than how it was before. It's kind of like, you know, just figure it out, you know. And it was, I mean, it was a, it was a really, really great experience for me to be there and like when I was a site supervisor anybody who came in who didn't have a car I made sure I made sure like we got a lot of young people like you know people fresh out of high school or people in college who didn't have cars all those people who came who were like young people who didn't have cars I made sure they all got cars and that was like a big thing for me was at least helping young people you know get their accomplishments and at least pushing them along rather than saying yeah you work here whatever you know so I actually take pride in that and you've been listening to Josh Texador and we were all wondering what would happen at Josh because my goodness he had grown up right before our eyes in the first story if you love what you're listening to go ahead and give us a five star rating and while you're at it please review us let us know what you like about this show it helps others find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Up next, the story of the Battle of Midway. After Pearl Harbor, the U.S. needed a major victory, which would come on a small sandy island in the middle of the Pacific. Writer Anne Claire tells us the story. The tiny 2.4-square-mile Midway Atoll was annexed by the U.S. in 1867. The descriptively, if not really imaginatively, named Eastern and Sand Islands in the atoll weren't inhabited, and they weren't useful for resources. 
but their allure lay in their strategic location. The atoll was about halfway between Asia and the US, or I suppose you could say midway between them, and pretty close to Hawaii. And in 1940, work began on getting that area set up with air and submarine facilities. Now, the famous Battle of Midway was actually not the first time in World War II that the atoll came under fire. On December 7, 1941, shortly after attacking Pearl Harbor, Japanese forces also attacked Midway. The engagement was fairly short, but there was still loss of life. One notable case was Lieutenant George H. Cannon, who became the first U.S. Marine to earn a Medal of Honor in World War II. Now, six months later, in May of 1942, the Japanese goals toward Midway were more ambitious. Now, Admiral Yamamoto of the Japanese Navy had his eyes set on the destruction of Midway's defenses and the occupation of the atoll by Japanese forces. He set the date for the attack, June 4th, with Midway, hopefully, flattened and occupied by the 7th. Now, there were, of course, lots of facets to the plan, but part of it at least revolved around the American commander, Admiral Nimitz, kind of falling for a little misdirection. Because the Japanese forces were going to split up, Yamamoto sent a smaller force to attack Alaska's Aleutian Islands just before the main attack on Midway. If the American forces were drawn up to Alaska, that would open up the southern Pacific areas uh, around Midway and around Hawaii for Yamamoto's forces to come in and do what they wanted to. Thankfully, though, American cryptanalysts had broken the Japanese naval codes. They had a, a, an idea that Midway was the main target, and so Admiral Nimitz planned a surprise of his own. Now, even knowing that Midway was the goal, the Americans were at a disadvantage because the Japanese had four aircraft carriers to bring to Midway. The U.S. had two operational ones in the Pacific, the Hornet and the Enterprise. The Yorktown was still there, but it was at Pearl, and it had been pretty damaged at the Coral Sea. The shipyard workers at Pearl had said that it was going to take three months to really get the Yorktown up and ready to go out and fight again, to which Admiral Nimitz responded he was going to need it in three days instead. And pretty amazingly, as can be said for a lot of the, the work done by shipyard workers and other, other supporting people during the wartime. They made it happen. They got the Yorktown sailing in time. Now, the commanders in charge, Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher aboard the Yorktown, to whom Nimitz gave overall tactical command, and Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance aboard the Enterprise, both moved their ships into position to quietly await the anticipated attack. And hopefully, Admiral Yamamoto wouldn't see them coming, wouldn't know they were there. Now, of course, one of the tricks with naval battles at this time was finding the other force because the ocean's a pretty big place. <laughs> so the planes would have to go out, you know, hopefully with good weather and hopefully just get a look at where exactly the enemy were coming from. And they could end up just missing each other completely. So flights from Midway made daily searches, scanning the seas for the Japanese fleet. Now at 5.45 on June 4th, a patrol plane called in. Enemy planes had been spotted. Shortly thereafter, a PBY spotted the main body of Japanese ships, including some carriers. So first of all, Midway Atoll's defending planes took off. They weren't going to be caught grounded like American forces in the Philippines and in other places had been. The Japanese planes met them. Records show that the American planes were pretty well swarmed, each pilot trying to shake from one to five Japanese fighters apiece. And it was a pretty intense fight for the American planes because the Japanese Zeros had the double advantage of being more maneuverable and also having more seasoned pilots. One of Midway's groups of pilots had only had a week of training in their planes before the attack. 
Now, of the 27 American planes that were defending the atoll, by the end of the battle, at this stage, 15 of them were missing, seven were severely damaged, and by 6.30 a.m., the first bombs were already falling on Midway itself, with the result of all of the above-ground structures being destroyed or damaged. They had done their best, the Japanese forces weren't checked, and most of Midway's fighters were gone. Three of the Japanese carriers were still either undamaged or at least not damaged enough to actually hamper them. So, that was the first stage of the battle, but there was a lot more to come. Now, though, the planes from the Enterprise, the Hornet, and the Yorktown, still waiting quietly out of sight, had to come in and have their say. Now, after the initial attack on the Midway Atoll, Japanese Admiral Nagumo, who was kind of running operations there at the battle, must have thought things were going quite well. The goal had been to engage Midway quickly and stealthily enough that the American Navy wouldn't be able to intervene in time. And as far as his patrols had told him after these first hits on the atoll, he'd succeeded. More importantly, they hadn't spotted any American aircraft carriers, and they weren't really expecting to. Now, when his pilots radioed in that another strike at Midway itself was necessary after that initial assault, he began making preparations. To do this, the planes and the hangars needed to be rearmed, though, with bombs rather than torpedoes. Now, this was a little bit of a process. According to one of my sources, it would likely take maybe 40 minutes. It would take a little while to get all the planes rearmed. But again, since there hadn't been any enemy aircraft carriers sighted, that wasn't a big deal necessarily. But as they were rearming the planes, word came in, at least one American aircraft carrier had been spotted after all. Now, Nagumo faced a difficult choice. He needed to shift his attention to this carrier. However, his planes returning from Midway needed to refuel and rearm, and there were still those in the hangar that were being ready for another assault on the ground. So, he made his choice, and this was a choice that would greatly impact the outcome of the battle and of history as well. He decided that they would wait the return of the Midway attack unit, and then carry out an air attack. So it was all a matter of timing. Could the Japanese get their planes in the air in time to attack the US ships, or would his four carriers be caught with their flight decks full? Now, meanwhile, as they're trying to figure all this out, the US task forces were waiting quietly. Word came that the Japanese carriers had been sighted, and so they prepared to enter the fray. In spite of there being a pretty uncooperative wind, the Enterprise and Hornet launched their scout bombers, torpedo planes, and fighters. The Yorktown's planes were temporarily held in reserve. Unfortunately, the American pilots didn't know their targets had moved. Now, the Enterprise and Hornet did not break radio silence to inform their pilots of this. So the Hornet's fighters and bombers turned south, and they missed the Japanese carriers completely exhausting their fuel, and a lot of them having to land in the sea. However, the torpedo squadron from the Hornet had become separated from the main group. They turned north, and they discovered the enemy carriers. This torpedo squadron was supposed to be you know, supported by other planes, but they didn't have them, and they went into attack anyway. One by one, the torpedo planes fell. Of 15, none made it. None made it back to their ship. Now, less than an hour behind the Hornet's torpedo squadron came the Enterprise's torpedo planes. These planes came in, again, without fighter protection, but also they attacked anyway. And it's unlikely that most of them even had a chance to drop their torpedoes and try and make a hit. Now, unlike the previous attackers, the Yorktown's pilots did have some fighter protection at first. However, they were quickly engaged by enemy aircraft, and yet another torpedo squadron began its approach pretty well alone. There were a lot of heavy losses in these different groups, but there was some success. Of the three carriers under torpedo attack, all had been at least hit, 
And also, the valiant efforts of these torpedo planes had two results that had a really huge impact on the battle. First, the Japanese carriers were kept busy maneuvering and they weren't able to launch their own bombers. And secondly, the Japanese fighters were flying low, focusing on the torpedo attacks, which meant they were unprepared for the approach of high-flying U.S. dive bombers. They met very little opposition until after they dropped their bombs and had scored at least 11 direct hits. Simultaneously, the Yorktown's dive bombers attacked the carrier to the east. Scoring at least five direct hits, they wreaked havoc on the carrier's flight deck. As the surviving U.S. planes returned their respective carriers, Gumo's powerful fleet was left with three carriers hit and in flames. But the planes that returned to the Yorktown didn't have a whole lot of time to celebrate. They were quickly warned to take off again and head over to the Enterprise because word came that Japanese forces were headed to attack the Yorktown. So, in spite of anti-aircraft fire and defending fighters, Japanese planes managed to land three 250-kilogram bombs on the Yorktown before being shot down. The explosions on the aircraft carrier started fires and extinguished all but one of the Yorktown's boilers. Now, the carrier's crew set to work and soon actually got the carrier limping along again and able to start refueling her surviving fighters. Then, word came from one of the accompanying ships, the Pensacola, which had been monitoring radar, that more Japanese planes were approaching. Now, the Yorktown launched her planes, and the ships that screened her set up a heavy curtain of anti-aircraft fire to protect the wounded carrier. Only two Japanese torpedoes hit home, but they were enough. Attempts to restore power failed, and everything went dark below the decks. Fearing that the Yorktown would just capsize completely, orders were given to abandon ship. Lieutenant Joseph Pollard, who was a flight surgeon, shared memories um, in writing of abandoning the Yorktown, describing how hard it was to even stand on the slick deck, searching for life preservers, trying to find a way to get the wounded safely off of the ship. Now, ships stood by to rescue the survivors, as meanwhile, American planes had located the source of these attacks, that fourth Japanese aircraft carrier, the Hiryu. After six direct hits, that carrier was also in flames, which left U.S. pilots in control of the air. The final stages of the Battle of Midway took the next couple of days. During it all, the Yorktown did remain afloat but crippled. Salvage crews even returned to the carrier, hoping to repair her enough to get her back home. And in the process, finding and saving some wounded who'd been overlooked in the evacuation. Until about 1.35 p.m., when four torpedo wakes were sighted to the Yorktown starboard side. The impact was tremendous, but she still didn't sink right away. But at 3.30, someone noticed that the Yorktown's list was increasing again, and at 5.01, she disappeared into the sea. So, in spite of the loss of the Yorktown and the many men who paid the ultimate sacrifice, the Battle of Midway wound up unquestionably being an American victory. Japan's loss of four aircraft carriers and over a hundred irreplaceable trained pilots really derailed their plans for expansion in the Pacific and was a major turning point in the war. Which is probably one reason why Hollywood's made a few movies about it. And a great job, as always, by Monty on the piece. And a special thanks to Anne Clare for setting on record what happened in the middle of the Pacific in the most important battle in our history. And to disarm and eliminate from competition four aircraft carriers is a big deal. And if you've ever seen an aircraft carrier or been on one, you know you don't make them in a day or a week and how important they are in Navy battles and how important it is to protect those carriers. And what they are and what they mean, the significance of taking them out, was indeed the turning point in the war in the Pacific. And we want to thank the great folks at Hillsdale College for supporting all of our stories about this great country's history. And you can learn more about Hillsdale and more about your own country by watching and viewing their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu 
Their terrific courses are free of charge, and they are superb. I highly recommend the Constitution 101 class. I learned more there than I did at three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. And by the way, we'd love to have more stories from you. We want to hear your stories. And you can send them to us at OurAmericanStories.com. Click on the Your Stories tab and share it with us and our listeners. We can't wait to hear them. Finally, we bring you the story of the man who holds the record for knitting the longest scarf while running a marathon. I'm David Babcock. Um, Many people know me as the knitting runner. I don't usually call myself that. Uh, I'm a, a father, a husband, a university professor of graphic design, and I don't think of myself as a celebrity. I'm just a pretty normal guy that is known for doing an unusual combination of two very normal things. Both knitting and running came about the same time, and that's that's how they got mashed up together. I was hitting middle-aged and find, found that my metabolism had slowed down significantly. And I, I knew I needed to exercise. I had tried running before, but whenever I ran for too long or, or too repetitively, my knees and ankles would really hurt. And I think that, that hits a lot of people. So I, I was working on, on ways to do running that wouldn't injure myself. And at the same time, uh, I have a general practice of trying to learn new skills. And, and I'd recently picked up crochet and knitting. So the it's kind of a funny combination of these things take time and there's not time to do a lot of running that takes hours and hours and sitting down to do knitting or crochet takes hours and hours. So when you try to learn too much in a tight time, you'll, you'll find that there's not time for both. You have to prioritize one or the other. So it's kind of a, a strange mix where I figured out how to, how to have time for both at the same time. I'm a designer and a artist. I I don't usually worry too much about the boundaries on those things. I I like to call myself a maker, so that encompasses anything. If if I decide something needs making, then I'm the one who's going to learn how to make it. And I I love learning new skills, how to do things. For me, the entry was more of a need. I needed a hat, and I had a student of mine that made me a hat, but it wasn't exactly perfect for my needs. So I found myself looking at this hat thinking, well, you know, I, I can do this. I can learn how to do this. I can make this better for my needs. My grandmother, you know, of course, knew how to knit and crochet. And you'd think that I would have learned from her. But nowadays it's, or back then even, it was, it's YouTube is everyone's grandmother. So I, I got on YouTube and tried to learn how to crochet. And I was able to figure that out and make my own hat. And then I figured out, well, I can make a better hat if I learn how to knit. So I taught myself again through YouTube how to knit. It just seemed like a, a natural skill to learn. It's like, well, why doesn't, why doesn't everyone learn how to knit and crochet? Everyone needs a hat, so they should learn how to make their own. And so with learning how to run, learning how to, how to make running not hurt, how to make it work for my middle-aged body, I, I found that the best way to do that was to run kind of like uh, they say barefoot running in a very flat style. So instead of picking my legs up and throwing them down and and uh, all the, the jarring that that did on my knees, I, I figured out that if you take little steps and try to land flat and gentle as if you were barefoot. And some of my first efforts, I actually tried barefoot and then worked up to socks and, and water socks or whatever really minimal shoe I could do. And, and in doing that, it's, it's kind of funny how it changed how I ran. So that instead of bouncing up and down as I ran, I was running really smooth. And it, it was just kind of weird. It's like, oh, this is, this is different. I've, I've never run this way before. So all the ideas that I had about what running was about, you know, just pumping your arms and, and, and all that vigorous motion, it, it changed into something that where I could breathe easier, I could talk easier, and my hands were more stable. Like I, I wasn't swinging my arms in big ways. And I thought, well, if my hands are stable, I'm a person who does things with their hands. What can I, what can I do with my hands while I'm running? I'm spending this hour or two on the road trying to not think about how tired I am and how far I have to go and how I want to stop and lay down. What can I do that would distract me? So 
what if I actually did some of my crochet at the same time? So I didn't start that immediately. My, my first experiment, you know, I, I like to do tests to slowly figure out a problem. So my first experiment was, can I hold my hands really steady as I run? So I, I think my first run, I basically just put my two hands in front of myself and touched my index fingers together and, and tried to figure out, could I, can I run and keep my fingers in a stable position? So that worked. Then I think I actually tried carrying like a little cup of water. Can I run without spilling a cup of water? And that, that worked. So I prepared a run where I had a uh, tiny crochet hook because that's what I was working on at the time and a little bit of really thin thread and I started running with that and it kind of worked but of course there were some weird problems I was wasn't perfectly flat so it's kind of hard to see where the holes were and my hands were getting sweaty and the the string the yarn I was using started to get knotted up and then I was really frustrating to try to get the knot out of the string so it was, it was basically a failure the first time I did it but I didn't want to stop there. I didn't want to stop in the middle of a problem. So eventually I landed on something that worked. So having solved the crochet while running question, I thought, well, what about knitting while running? Because I had also learned how to knit recently. So I went through that series of experiments and uh, figured out basically how to do it. And um, it was kind of a, a confluence of this problem to solve and this problem to solve and being curious if it would work. And, and not really self-editing, not saying, oh, that's that's silly. Why would, why would anyone try to do that? But just, hey, you know, it's, it's a problem. It's there. It's a question. It's a curiosity. It sounds fun to me. So I didn't really advertise what I was doing to people. But of course, my family knew what I was doing. And my wife, uh, her first response is, well, are you being safe while you do this? <laughs> you know, obviously, she, she doesn't want me to do anything that would hurt myself. She's used to me doing kind of creative and, and crazy things, and of course is supportive of that. Uh, I reassured her it was safe. I did have an early, an early accident that taught me how to be more safe. I was running along a, a road in the, the countryside and there were big potholes in it. And I wasn't paying close enough attention, so I, I did uh, step into a pothole and I, I just went straight down. But the knitting needles were when I knit, they're, they're held across my body. They're not pointed directly at me. That's a really weird knitting technique. I don't know if that would even work. So uh, I was fine. I didn't, I didn't stab myself with a needle, but I did scrape up my hands and it was embarrassing. I think I even hit my forehead too because my hands were so busy, I couldn't catch myself. So I figured out, okay, yeah, obviously I've got to pay attention. I've got to keep an eye on the road, keep an eye on the, the knitting. And it becomes kind of a, a double focus thing. You, you kind of like you keep one eye 18 inches in front of you and the other eye scanning, you know, the three feet in front of you. My first public race was a local half marathon. So there would have been maybe a hundred runners. And I, I felt pretty nervous being in public for the first time with, you know, my knitting stuff out. And, and I, I didn't know what people would think. And, and not that it matters a whole lot, but, but when you're doing something different, it's a weird mix of, I hope no one looks at me and I hope someone looks at me. You, know, you, you want to be recognized that you're doing something different, but, but you don't want to be embarrassed by it or uh, scrutinized for it. You just kind of want to do your thing and have people quietly notice and appreciate it. And you don't always get that. At the end of the race, I, I, I think my family was there to take pictures with what I knitted, but there wasn't any news media or anything. So it was a very, you know, very quiet thing. It's like, uh, yes, I did this, and maybe I emailed a couple of family members. I might have put it on a blog, but but it's was, it was still a very private thing. So when I was first experimenting with crochet and knitting while running, I, I had, the, of course, the question, well, as I'm trying to do this, is there anyone else who's tried to do this before? And is that going to help me figure out how to do this? So I went online, and it didn't take too long to find Susie Hewer. Uh, she has a blog called The Extreme Knitting Redhead. And in that blog, she talked about uh, her uh, knitting while running a, a marathon, the London Marathon, and uh, getting a Guinness World Record for this. So I thought, oh, oh, that's cool. So yes, there, there are people who've done this, and there's actually a Guinness Record. That's cool. So I guess this is worth doing. So I, I didn't give it too much more thought beyond that uh, at the time, and I continued to do my own thing and figure out what works for me. And it, it wasn't until... Um, in 2009, I had uh, taken a trip to New York City, and coming up out of the subway, I just happened to come up in Central Park at the end of the New York City Marathon. And 
I was just floored. I, I was totally inspired by seeing all the runners there. I had just barely started running in earnest myself and seeing all those runners uh, just giving it their all, all body types, all abilities, uh, it, it moved me to tears. I, I thought, well, I'm just so impressed with what they're doing. Could I ever run a marathon? Could I, could I do that much? So I had set a goal at that point to, to run a marathon. And I ran my first marathon in 2012. And I, I, I did it. It worked. I was able to do a, a marathon under four hours. And I, I felt really accomplished. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I've, I've done it. That's my goal. I had this, this dream that I could do a marathon. I'm done. That same year after I had run the marathon, my, my brother-in-law decided he wanted to run a marathon. And he was going to come to my city and, and run it with me. So I, I'd already run a marathon. I didn't have anything to prove myself. And I thought, well, I'll just run with him, help him finish or run at his pace. And we had done a test run together and he was a lot slower than I was. So I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be an awful marathon. If, if I'm running really slow, um, it's, it's just hard to run slow when you think you can do better. So I thought, well, maybe this is the time where I could take my knitting while running up a, to a more public level to actually do it during a marathon. So that made me look back at Susie Hewer's record uh, where she had done it during the marathon and, and gotten the Guinness record. So I thought, well, I, I wonder if I could actually get the Guinness world record for doing what she had done. Could I do better than that? The, the process of getting a Guinness world record is really tough. It's, it's in many ways harder than doing the thing itself. So I, I figured out how to knit and run but figuring out how Guinness works and following all of their requirements, that was really tough. So it, it took me months and months to uh, just get the application going, figure out what it was that I had to do, following all the parameters. But it, it worked out that I was able to do the, the Kansas City Marathon uh, with my brother-in-law and have that be my, my record attempt. So I, I still hold the Guinness record for the longest scarf knit whilst running marathon there. Susie Hewer. When I knew I was going to potentially break her record, I, I wanted to make sure that I did it for the right reasons. She, she had originally done her Guinness record as a, a way to raise awareness and funds for Alzheimer's research. So when I knew I was going to attempt the record, I made sure that I was connected with the Alzheimer's Association in the U.S. and doing some fundraising for them. And whenever I had the chance with media interviews, I wanted to make sure to mention that because it was so important that what she had done to be amazing was not about herself. It wasn't about what awesome things she could do, but it was about refocusing people on something that mattered to her and something that, that deserved attention and a little bit of focus for the, for the fundraising. So I, I tried to do that as much as I could. So Guinness had several requirements, technical requirements for the scarf. Uh, one was the size of the needles needed to be a, a US size 15. The number of stitches across needed to be 30 stitches, straight needles, 30 stitches, and the pattern is what's known as a garter stitch. With those requirements, technically, for the knitting, and then the, the marathon had to be an official licensed marathon, and you had to finish under six hours. So it's, it's a balance of those things that, that needed to be figured out. The slower you run, the closer to that six-hour limit, the more time you have to knit. I had my brother-in-law's running with, and a special a knitting witness that could verify that I was doing real knitting and not finding some weird way around it. And, and I had a camera strapped to my chest, a, a GoPro, so I could have the whole thing videotaped without any interruptions. It was all documented. I had rigged up several different bags. So I had one fanny pack on, on my front that held plastic bag with a pre-wound ball of yarn in it. And I would just feed it out of that bag uh, into my hands. And then I had another fanny pack behind me that had the other balls of yarn that I would do. So I could, after I finished one, I could reach back and put the new one in the front bag. And as the knitting got long enough, I had to secure uh, the scarf. So it wasn't just waving around or tripping me up. So I looped it with some paracord and carabiners onto the, the waist pack that I had so it would be secured. And as I ran, it, it got so long, I ended up winding it several times around my body. It, it totally enveloped my uh, my upper legs, so you couldn't even see my legs. And, and uh, so by the time I ended, it, it, it wasn't going to be mistaken for a scarf that someone was just wearing. This, this thing was huge. It's, it's like maybe two feet wide, so not a normal scarf in width. And then over uh, 12 feet, one and 
three quarter inches was the official measurement. We had uh, two knitting experts and an official measurement expert. They uh, laid it out on the pavement to measure it. They were careful not to stretch it. And I encouraged them to make sure they measured from the shortest dimension, not the longest dimension. And uh, that's the size we got. And it was uh, almost double what the previous record had been. And uh, my time was a little bit shorter than the previous record that Susie Hewer had done. So it, it worked out great. It was, it was a great success. That, that first record year in 2013, that same fall, um, I went to New York and was, was on the, the Weather Channel talking with them about knitting and running. And they asked if I was going to run the New York City Marathon. And, and of course, there wasn't time to, to get into the race then. But I did end up the next year, uh, 2014, running New York City Marathon. Different race, different requirements. I, I couldn't use knitting needles because of security concerns, but I, I ended up doing some finger knitting there. I invented a, a new way of knitting so I could do 12 stitches, uh, and I did double knitting with that, with words and a scarf, so really intricate stuff with just my hands and no, no tools. The next year after that, I did another New York City marathon with finger crochet, so again, no tools, but I made flowers off of yarn that I had wrapped around my arms and gave out the flowers as I ran with reminders about Alzheimer's. And I think that maybe that same year or the next one, I did a, a giant crochet doily in the Kansas City Marathon. And one of those years, I, I also did a finger knitting half marathon. So I, I had several races for several years. Then it was just kind of like, okay, I'm done. This is, this is over. I'm, I don't need to do this anymore. Marathons are hard on the body. I, I don't really consider a marathon to be a healthy thing because of how I end up at the end of the race, just exhausted and dehydrated. And so I, I wasn't really interested in doing too many more uh, marathons. It's interesting how things live on the internet. They don't really go away. Things like this interview popping up, it, it's kind of funny that uh, the same month, I'm, I'm scheduled now to go to Rome and uh, participate in a, a re reality TV show where they want me to knit while running uh, on TV on a, a talent show. So it's. So I've been training again, you know, making sure I can easily run and easily knit uh, at the same time. And it, it still works, but it's, it's different in that the spectacle level is increasing. My personal risk of embarrassment is increasing. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a new challenge. I, I don't think of myself as a performer or as a celebrity. I'm kind of a behind the scenes, do something, let someone see the work. But I believe in when there's an opportunity for something to go ahead and follow the opportunity without self-editing and saying, oh, that's not me, or I can't do that, or there's no way that that fits who I am. But, but instead take the opportunity to say, oh, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do a television interview, even though that horrifies me. Um, I'll perform in public, even though I'm really shy. Um, I'll, I'll knit while running, even though it sounds really silly and makes no sense and has no purpose. But I, I believe in following those opportunities or those questions and just seeing where it leads. So there are big time gaps in between some of my activities, but as they keep coming, I'll still do them. And I don't know, uh, Susie Hewer, she's, she's older than I am and she's her, I think her record was at an older age than I did. So. There's still, if there's some competition in me still as, you know, maybe I, if I can still run as old as she is and still running, she's a great role model in so many ways. So there's, there's still some fight left in me. There's still some, some knitting to be done and some races to run. And a great job by Faith on that piece. And what a beautiful and lovely soul. And my goodness, him simply saying, following opportunities and seeing where they lead. It's such a beautiful spirit, and it's an American spirit. Frankly, it's a human spirit, and in America we get to do it with less obstruction and less opposition than probably anywhere else in the world. Weird is sort of normal here, and it's a good thing and celebrated uh, across this great country, trying things that other people might think are silly or not possible. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen. We've told the story of Joe Klimchak, who knew he would be working for the Pittsburgh Pirates at the age of seven, the story of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, and also the story of a small-town girl's annual trip to a juke joint festival with her dad, and so much more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast.
Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.